Did did you eat a cupcake? No. You didn't eat a cupcake? No, I wasn't at home. You sure you didn't eat a cupcake? No. Hmm. I thought you maybe had a cupcake. No. No? No. Definitely not? No. Not like in the last couple minutes? No. No cupcake for Jack? No. Oh, okay. All right, good morning. So, uh, if you haven't guessed, we're going to be talking about honesty this morning. My name's Dell. Glad to be with you this morning. Um, you know, the, the lying starts pretty young, right? I don't know if that rang any bells for the moms in the room. Happy Mother's Day. Um, but uh, we just aren't very good at it when we start. Um, and probably the difference is, as we get older, um, we just get more proficient um, at the ways that we're dishonest uh, with ourselves and with God and with others. Uh, I think it's an important topic that we look at. It's so important because we do lie so much. And so when, uh, when social scientists look at this, um, they tell us that when we videotape folks just having a normal social conversation, so whether, when they're in a place um, where, think, think a dinner party or something at work, where we're just catching up with one another, and we have, a, uh, we have some vested interest in coming off well to one another, that the average person um, lies, 60% of them, within 10 minutes in those conversations. And, and what's even more startling when I was looking at this um, is that these conversations have actually been videotaped, and the people involved had no idea that they were doing it many times. So they were as shocked as the researchers when they actually broke the tape down um, and realized that the impulse to impress one another, even in the, even in the best of us, right, uh, begins to cause us to fudge little details and the way we spin information and the way we deliver things and what we don't say and what we do say um, to convey the impression that we want people to have. This holds true uh, virtually in any arena where we are presenting ourselves to each other. So think online dating profiles for a second. Uh, anybody want to take a guess at what the uh, veracity rate um, on those are? 90% uh, fudge their online dating profiles. And some of it's a bit predictable. It's you know, a little bit, both men and women lie about at equal rates, but they lie about a little different thing. So women, it tends to be about their weight. Um, men, it's their height or their education or their wealth. Okay, and again, not always, not always like giant lies, like outright, dis, you know, untruths, but what we would call white lies, right? The things that just do impression management. Um, we lie about a lot of things. We fudge things. We lie on our resumes. We lie to our doctors. We lie about our diets and how much we exercise. We lie about our test scores. So another, another little experiment was done um, where, the, where the test was actually statistically engineered where people would only get about 4 out of 10 right. So they, they proved that the average person gets 4 out of 10. And then they did the test on a, on a self-report group. So same test, same kind of people, but guess what the reported score right was? Like six or seven, right? Um, and again, people are probably thinking, well, I knew the answer was B, but I just probably marked A. You know? And so, and so uh, they justify that. And so, so we lie on our test scores. We lie to our spouses. 
We lie to our bosses. We lie to our coworkers. Um, we even lie, interestingly, about how much we lie. So there's been studies on this where, where um, you know, people are asked things about their behavior or whatever, and and then asked to predict how much they lie, and about 40% will say, yeah, I do lie. Um, you know what the most accurate predictor of our actual behavior is? It's not what we say it is. It's actually our Google search history. So they've actually done regression experiments with people who allow folks to kind of look at what they actually do online, and it paints a very different picture between what they would say about themselves and self-report data. So here's a little thought experiment. Like It's, kind of a, it's a striking one. Uh, this morning, if you had to choose between your tax returns being put up on the screen or your Google, Google search history, like actually, what, which would you choose? It's kind of a double bind there, isn't it, in some ways? Um, because there are a lot of things that are true about ourselves that we would never want, of course, up on the screen. There's so much lying going on all the time, every day, that researchers estimate that the average person is lied to about 200 times a day. Did you know that? Um, basically, from the time that you walk out the door to the time that you get home, including probably what's going on there at home, um, involves a lot of dishonesty. Um, and so we could say in some ways that we live uh, among a people of unclean lips, and we are people of unclean lips, as the scripture tells us. Um, that this is, this is the nature of being human. Probably most sadly of all, we lie to ourselves. Again, research shows a shocking propensity for all of us as human beings to believe our own press. So in other words, the lies that we tell uh, you know, to ourselves and about ourselves ultimately become somewhat of our reality. So it's pretty frightening to... to um, contemplate for a second that the lies that we're telling actually become our self-perception. This is shown over and over again that we actually believe over time to be true the things that we actually lie about. And so we lose gradually our grip on reality, which is why I think all of us know at some level, um, just by being in relationship, we, we probably see it less about ourselves, probably about someone else in your life, um, that there's a certain sense in which we can only be honest about that which we are willing to see. So we can't see what we won't see. And that's why, that's why all of us, we, we have the phrase that we have blind spots, um, things that are just in, our, in, our, in, our, in the rearview mirror that we just can't see because it's up too close to us. Um, and for one reason or another, we don't want to see them about ourselves. Tragically, lies can begin to become our identity. So we see this probably most vividly in the pictures of addiction, where someone who is profoundly organized around a substance, think alcohol for a minute, could be anything, where everybody in the room, everybody in the entire, probably the entire relational universe, knows that there's a problem except who? Right? Because the lies actually have become the identity. And while we see that probably most vividly in chemical addictions or things that, have, that ravage the outward person, this is also true about the inward one, that the lies that we believe, the lies that we tell about ourselves, ultimately begin to shape 
the identity that we operate from. And so uh, we are people who in so many respects, if you can just forward my PowerPoint here, um, who are like this guy uh, with our fingers crossed, um, more or less um, liars. So don't think it's helpful. Like I was just trying to, this is very demanding content even for a preacher to, you know, I was reflecting on it this week. Like it's probably not helpful to think of ourselves as being either honest or unhonest, but some probably more like something on a continuum. Um, we are where we are honest in some places of our lives um, and sadly dishonest in others, right? And so there is a mixture in all of us um, of dishonesty. So we have to ask the question then, why, why all the lying? Why so much lying? Why 200 times a day? Why, uh, why do we lie? And I think... Uh, there's probably really a lot of good answers uh, to that, but as I was reflecting on it this week and just thinking about the biblical narrative, I think the honest truth about all of us is that we have all failed. We've all missed the mark, right? That's the biblical definition, actually, of sin. Sin is simply coming short. We've come short of the mark. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we carry in ourselves this reality, this tension that we are not all that we know we ought to be. Certainly before God, but I think when we're honest with ourselves, we miss the mark and come short of our, even our own expectations. And so when we sit quietly for a minute, there are, there are profound disappointments inside of ourselves, this, this knowledge that, that we wish that we were more, that we know that we were made for more, that we have come short uh, we, have, we have blown it, not only with the people that we love the most, but even with ourselves. And at the core, to be human is to have to admit to profoundly being unperfect, to being incomplete, to being poor, to being less than we would hope. To be human is to have to wrestle with the attention, with the, with the tension that we are not what we hoped to be. And no one wants to admit that. No one wants to admit that to God, certainly. Um, we certainly don't want to do that to each other. And probably most profoundly, we don't want to admit that to ourselves. And so when we ask the question, why all the lying? Part of the answer is that we are trying to hide from something that is at the very core of our existence. What do we do with the, atten- with the tension of actually being sinners? How do, we, how do we actually think about and talk about the fact that we're broken, that we're incomplete, that we are less than we hoped, that we are a disappointment at some level, even to ourselves, and how do we live under the burden of that, right? And uh, it's interesting that the very beginning of the Bible, again, I love the Bible because it's so honest about reality, right? And so we get the story of, you remember the first human beings, Adam and Eve, um, Genesis 3, they're in the garden. God's put them in this perfect context. They have every opportunity to hope. Um, and, and yet, while all is well on the outside, something arises that breaks them on the inside. And you remember that Eve 
um, out of a desire to chase her perception of good, chases it in a way that causes her to distrust God, to take her own fate into her own hands, to disobey God's one command, right, of fidelity and trust, to, to, to look to him for satisfaction. And she takes the, the fruit, invites Adam into that. He, make no mistake, he was not duped. He, he opted in, right? And so here they are with their first experience of what I just told you about. The scripture just frames it like this. Their eyes were open and they realized that they were what? They were naked. So suddenly, for the first time, this profound tension of what I just told you about, this internal tension of brokenness, of incompleteness, of vulnerability, of shame, of guilt, okay? And, and what do they do? It's, it's, sort of a, it's sort of a ridiculous picture because God would come to walk with them in the garden and here we have this picture of our first parents, like, intelligent, you know, like, beyond probably imagination, and yet here they are hiding in bushes. And so God's like, hey, where are you guys? And they're crouching behind a bush. Isn't it funny? I mean, it's like, it's like sad, but it's funny. We look at that and we go, how stupid? I mean, like, God knows everything. He knows, do they really think that they're going to pull it over on God? with a couple of fig leaves, they're hiding in bushes. And so God comes and he asks this question. He asks, where are you? Where are you? Of course, uh, exposed, they come out. And, you know, remember Adam, the first thing he does is he just throws his wife under the bus. Like, the reason that I did this, the reason that I'm naked, the reason that I have this incompleteness is because of her. You gave her to me. Right? And then, and then God looks at her and he, bl- you know, it's like kicking the dog. She blames the snake. And the, and the whole pattern of the destructive way of dealing with this reality that we all face, our incompleteness and our shame and the fact that we have not, we have missed the mark. We, have, we don't measure up to God's standard or to ourselves goes right down the pike through a destructive progression of hiding of blaming, of ignoring, all, the, all these things that shift and move us farther away from the truth. Now, here, now here's, the, here's, the, here's the question echoing down over this entire talk this morning, is that God, he knows what's happened. So we have to ask the question, why did he ask the question? Like, what was God wanting in the middle of the brokenness and the shame what was he after? Why would he ask a question? Why would he not come out guns blazing? Why would he not? You could think of a thousand other ways that he could have handled that situation. Why play this game of hide and seek? Why ask this question that invites honesty? And I want to suggest to you that in, the, in this topic, in this matter of honesty as we consider it, we share some things together this morning, you and I, with each other in common, this universal brokenness, this universal tension to, what to, to know what to do about it, this universal temptation to flee and to hide from our shame and our guilt, and then this universal question that, sh- that shapes the context of the Bible 
which is God's part in this, and he's asking you a question. He's asking me a question this morning. He's asking, where are we? It's an invitation. It's an invitation into honesty. And personal revival begins when we face our sin honestly. Now, I want us to turn over to another text. It's in 1 John. Uh, Trevor actually read it for us this morning um, in the worship. Didn't know he was going to do that, but thank you, Trevor. Um, I want us to look at verses 5 through 9. And I've got another picture here for you. Because this, this, uh, this passage helps frame out the two options that we have in answer to this question that God is asking every human being, where are you? Okay, and we have two options. So let's, let's read 1 John 1. And I want to read verses 5 through 9. Okay? This is the message that we heard from Jesus and we now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but we go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves. We are not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Now look up here for a second at me. God is asking this question to this fundamental need that we all have, to this brokenness, to our temptation to hide. He's saying, where are you? And we have, we have basically two paths that we can walk and answer that question. We can walk the path of secrecy, hiding, blame, and denial, which is the path of darkness, or the scripture says that we have another option, that we can walk in the light. Now I want you to notice, as we frame out these two choices, that in the light is where God is. Because God is light. And the scripture reassuringly tells us that at the very core of the universe there is a goodness, there's beauty, there's truth, in which there is no darkness. So at the center of the universe is this beautiful, radiant source of life and goodness that is God himself. It's where he lives. And he's inviting ordinary people, broken people, human beings, incomplete people, like you and me, who live in tension about our brokenness. He's inviting us to come to walk where he is, to live increasingly more and more in the light where he is. And he makes this abundantly clear all through the scriptures. In fact, it's interesting that John, the apostle who writes this, um, he's kind of known as the apostle of light. 
Because his portrayal of Jesus is the one who comes from the Father as the light, actually, of the world. So you see this metaphor all the way from the garden now? It's like, it's like take two. Jesus himself is coming to bring people like you and me out of our shame and brokenness into the fellowship with the Father who is light. And he's making it possible, really and truly, for us to live with him, to walk with him, to become like him, to move out of the destructiveness of our, of our sin and into wholeness and into beauty and into goodness. Do you see this? It's actually possible for people like me and you on the pathway to light. But there is another option. John the Apostle tells us in another place that men actually loved darkness, they would not come into the light, um, because their deeds were evil. So there were people, as they encountered this beautiful message of light and the possibility of moving out of darkness into it, who decided to hold on to the darkness. In other words, they, they chose the dishonesty. They chose the darkness over the light. And so we also have to contemplate that we have this choice in varying ways to remain in our darkness. God will not force us. He's not here to bully you. He's asking you a question. He's saying, where are you? And he's giving you this invitation to come into fellowship with him. Now, I want us to be clear about the path of darkness for a minute because... uh, It's our default choice. I've already told you, the universal temptation, the reflexive response, where all of us have been at varying degrees, is to hide rather than to come into honesty, right? This is the reflexive human condition. Incompleteness, shame, and hiding. We are comfortable in the dark. But the dark has consequences. So I have another picture for you. We have a little saying in our culture when someone is being inauthentic. We say, you know, I couldn't reach him or her. I don't, I don't really know who they are. It seems like they're friendly and, you know, they present various things. But it feels to me like they were wearing a mask. Now, there's, a, there's, a, there's an etymology, there's sort of a history to that expression in our culture. It actually comes from the Greek theater. So in Greek theater, you know, tragedies and comedies, you remember, remember high school? Okay. So the way that they would do acting is that they would convey various emotions and characters and stuff, both happy and sad, all kinds of emotions. The actors would wear a mask. So the, word, the, the actual word for hypocrite like we're, we use that now in a really negative way, but the actual word for hypocrite in the Greek was actually actor. Literally the one who wore a what? A mask. Um, to portray, because they were portraying in their, in their acting, it wasn't them, it was something, they were portraying someone else. So they were not being themselves, they were being the character. So we get this, we get this uh, now in our language, and it has this negative connotation of being a hypocrite, like actually actively trying to deceive like portraying on the outside something that we know is patently false 
some level about the inside, okay? And so we can think of dishonesty in this picture that, that varying degrees, all of us wear masks to God, to each other, to ourselves. Um, and let me, let me just tell you that a life of dishonesty, and again, this is backed up by both scripture and life experience, social science, all these things, um, is destructive to the human soul, ultimately to peace and to happiness for the following reasons. When we are hypocrites, when we are dishonest, when we lie, when we choose the dark, rather than this provision that God is making for us to come to the light, number one, we create gaps. In, it's, it's inevitable to create a gap in our relationships. So as I'm portraying something that I want you to believe about me that is not true, even if I'm successful and you believe me, now you begin to love me and respond to me on the basis of what I portrayed to you that's not accurate. Okay, what happens in this relationship? Do we get closer or farther apart? We might feel like we're going, getting along fine, but what's actually happening? We're getting farther apart. So, so the nature of dishonesty is always to put a gap in intimacy. It actually ruins the nature of relationships. Any of you who have been married for very long know this. Because you know that at some level, your spouse knows you and loves you. And then there's another part where you wonder, I wonder what they would believe if they really knew. Right? Because there's pieces in all of our relationships that we keep at a distance because of fear. Exponentially, this happens over time and in multiple ways. Like it does, it's, not, it's fluid and it's complex. And we end up, I end up talking to people a lot of times as a counselor who actually believe they're extremely successful in the public eye, but they feel personally like a fraud. Like they literally live at some level with this thought that, if, that one day this is all going to fall apart, right? What's happened? The nature of their intimacy has been wrecked because they've chose to live in dishonesty. Dishonesty always puts a gap in your relationships. It's true with God. It's true with each other. Ultimately, it can be true with ourselves where we begin to, again, we begin to believe the press. We don't know ourselves. We don't even know why we feel the way we do. This is, this is the way to disintegration. I can tell you this as a psychologist. It's a way to disintegration of the human personhood. Okay? And God's telling us this. There's, it puts a gap in our relationships. Secondly, the reason that dishonesty ultimately is not a, it's a, it's a destructive choice is that it undermines our peace. Do you know it's really complicated and exhausting ultimately to cover all our tracks? It's just tiring. Um, people who live in the dark, it's a continuum, right? But at whatever level we're living in the dark, it's exhausting to carry the, the interpersonal and internal pressure of feeling like a fraud, it destroys peace, does not make for conviction or solidity at the core. And then thirdly, dishonesty keeps us stuck because the nature of dishonesty is to hide the problem, not to deal with it. So even when we're, when, even when we're just being silent about it or ignoring it, the basic premise of that strategy is not to address the issue. Do you agree with me? The nature, of, the nature of that, of hiding, is not to address the issue. So what happens to the issue? It just remains. It keeps, so we, we, ultimately, dishonesty keeps us in a cycle of non-resolution at every le- level of our life 
um, because, because of, the, of the cycle of non-resolution and guilt, okay? Now, there is another choice, okay? This is, this is the point of the sermon. There is another choice. Here's my final picture for you. The scripture tells us about this beautiful attitude and actually practice of the heart. We got intimations of it in 1 John when he said, if you confess your sins, right? If you say you, if you, say you don't have sin, come on, we're just, we're just back in the game, right? We're just back in the cycle of endless non-resolution. But if you want to take a different path, I've provided something for you to come into the light. It's called confession. Confession just means agreement. So to confess our sins is to just tell the truth about them. It's just, to, it's just before God. No, step one is basically just to say to God, this is sort of silly that I'm in the bushes. You're saying, where are you? And I'm like, I'm in the bushes. Okay? Like, I know it's a game. It works for me at some level, but, like, it's not working. Like, I actually want to come out into the light. And so you say, well, how do I come out? But I'm naked. Like, how, how, do, I, how do I come out? Well, you come out through confession. Because confession at the, at the very root of it is just, to, it's just agreement. So, so, so rather than excuses or blaming or spin or all the other lies, we just agree with God. We confess our sins. And, and here's, what, here's what John's saying. God will be, can be trusted with that. Like, he's not going to go, oh, see, blah, you know. He's going to actually go, okay. Like, we're, we're, at, we're, at, we're at the point of meeting. Like, hello, it's really glad to know you. What's your name? And you say, well, I'm naked, and I'm broken, and I'm ashamed, and I've got guilt. And God's like, yeah, I know. Um, I'm God. See, like I, like, I, like, I made you, I love you, I've got a plan for that. So I've got a plan for that. And it's not going to be, I'm not saying this is going to be painless, but I'm going to go with you because I'm taking you forward. I'm taking you into the light where I am and where you will begin to discover in ways that will blow your mind the reintegration of your life. Do you follow what I'm saying? The reintegration of your life. This is what is at stake in honesty. Now, I don't have a lot, I don't have a lot of time left, okay? So I'm just going to... I want to wind down, but... So I was thinking this week, like, okay, so next week, we've, you know, this is... This, this seeking him stuff is not for the faint of heart, right? So next week is repentance, okay? So I know that that's coming. Like, that's God's... We're going to find out how awesome that is, okay, next week. Um, I'm not shooting for repentance this week. I'm just, I'm just shooting for honesty. Okay, I'm, just shooting for, I'm just shooting for like... Because, I mean, and let, me, let me tell you something here. That's not simple. Honesty, honesty is, the, is the trickiest thing. Uh, because from the time we were two years old taking the cupcakes, like, like we haven't stopped lying. We've just gotten better at it. Have we just gotten better at it? And so to unravel, to unravel the sophistication of the way lies actually work, both outside and inside of ourselves, is not simple. You know what it takes? Like I was at a workshop this weekend, 
you know, you know why Americans are all bling and like two miles wide and about an inch steep, deep and we're starting to collapse? Like our, like our structures, our marriages, our society. We can't bear the weight. We won't stop. Like the way, the way that we deal with every internal like tension is we just, we just schedule it faster. Like the, the busier we are. You know what happens when you stop and reflect? Like your actual life catches up with you. Sort of like slamming the brakes on in the car. And it's like, there goes the coffee up on the dash. It's like, <laughs> And most of us, it takes a giant leap of courage to actually slow down enough to hear God's question and to actually think about it. Like when he says, where are you? Where are you? And I think there's two practices that I'm going to give you. Like you might need your phone to take a picture here because I don't have time to walk through it. Like I was thinking I might. Anybody ever heard of the seven deadly sins? Hear that? Seven deadly sins? The seven deadly sins are just a way that the Christian tradition has sort of grouped pathways of dishonesty. And the tradition tells us that, these are, these are biblical categories as well, I could, I could have taken you to passages, but it's biblical categories. But, but, the, but the tradition tells us that these are, the, these are the seven most fatal sort of like groupings of sins for spiritual vitality and progress. Like in other words, if you want to live in the light versus live in the dark, like you go through the seven deadly sins. Pride, envy, gluttony, Lust, anger, greed, sloth. Okay? Now, here's the challenge, like if you're up to it. Like again, what we're shooting for here is just, is just honesty. Like what would it look like to ask the question, where are the seven deadly sins showing up in my life? So pride, excessive belief in my own ability or maybe the flip side, excessive self-focus that makes me paralyzed by fear, blocks the grace of God. Envy, the desire for others, traits, status, abilities, or situations, or maybe just the, the sincere desire that other people didn't have them. Gluttony, the inordinate or the excessive, disordered desire to consume uh, as a means of satisfaction, more than what's needed. Lust, the disproportionate and excessive craving for the pleasures of the body. We think, we think mainly sexually here, which is huge, um, but there's also lust for many other kinds of things like power, and etc. Anger, vengeful indignation, the, the actually the will at some level to harm. Greed, excessive desire for material wealth or gain, sloth, the avoidance of physical or spiritual work. What would it begin to look like to just ask the question? God's saying, where are you? To reflect this week, to actually slow down, to get off the treadmill, to set aside a, some time to listen to the Holy Spirit. And again, the, the idea here is not to go into shame or guilt paralysis. It's just to agree. 
just to agree with God, to, to say, step one, this is where you meet me. Okay? Honesty is how you open the door to grace. All right? And here's the, here's the second part of the challenge. I told you this is demanding stuff, all right? Second part of the challenge. You remember, remember I told you about the, the, the most insidious part of dishonesty is that we can't actually see sometimes ourselves? What would it like, look like to approach a spouse or a close family member or friend um, and to actually invite them to spotlight a little bit you? Doesn't that sound lovely? Like, this is the way to ruin Mother's Day, right? <laughs> okay, so, so but, but seriously... Now, I learned this weekend on my little, little conference that an honest question is actually one that you want the answer to. So it would kind of be silly to do an exercise on honesty dishonestly. Would you agree that would be kind of silly? So like, like if you were to ask these questions, you would actually have to want to know. Like the, the premise would be just to listen non-defensively. Okay? Um, but to say to someone close to you, what do I do that hurts you? That should be fun. Um, how could I better love you? This one scares me, actually. What's it like to be with me? Like, what's that experience like? Um, am I a person that actually shows interest in other people, or am I one of those? And to begin, again, the practice here is not to go into paralysis here because what is God saying about this? Here's what what I want you to see. Honesty opens the door to what? To grace. It opens the door to grace. God has a plan. He's taking you forward. He wants to meet you. He knows your name. He's asking this question over your life and mine. Where are you? He's waiting. All heaven's waiting. The door to grace is open. The question is, will we walk through it? All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for my friends. I thank you that they, were, they allowed me this morning to talk honestly to them. Believe me, God, you know how much like, I'm reeling in myself, um, wanting to be honest also, uh, before you, a man broken in need of grace. Um, so help us, Lord, to get to the starting line through this wonderful provision of honesty as we continue the study of seeking him, Lord. Uh, bring us ultimately to Jesus, the light who leads us into the light because we want to live with you. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.